Hello, everyone. Welcome to After the Last Dance, a 10-part podcast series presented by Soul Savvy. I am your host, Alex Wong. And after each episode of The Last Dance, I'll be joined by my co-host, Russ Bankson, to recap and walk through all of the major talking points of the documentary series. Before we get started, Russ, I just want to give a quick shout out to Soul Savvy and their entire team for giving the two of us the space to chat about this documentary series. Soul Savvy is a sneaker platform and community that provides you with the tools and resources you need to beat the bots and successfully purchase the products you want for retail. For more details, check out soulsavvy.com, S-O-L-E-S-A-V-Y.com. So Russ, episode three, we finally get introduced to this character named Dennis Rodman. Uh, Before we even get into the episode, I want to hear about what it was like for you watching Dennis growing up and your memories of him. Well, I mean, you know, obviously, like I had some of the same feelings for Dennis Rodman that Jordan and Pippen did. I mean, I hated him, you know, like that Pistons team was just a nightmare for the Bulls as they tried to sort of come over that hump. And Rodman was one of those guys that you know, you looked at it as literally just a provocateur. I mean, we're going to, we're obviously going to get to this, but one of my favorite parts of episode three was Gary Payton calling Rodman a fuck up and then defining that as he was the guy who fucked everything up. And that's what Dennis was. Like, he wasn't a scorer. He was an amazing rebounder. He could track down everything, but mostly he was there to like shove Scotty Pippen into the bench or or into the stands or hit somebody in the air. Like, I don't think until he got to the Bulls, I fully appreciated him as an actual skilled NBA player, which, you know, was sort of a oversight on my part. But, you know, Dennis was a pest. Yeah, Dennis fucked my life up, too. You know, when I was 12, 13, I remember reading his books, Bad As I Want to Be and Walk on the Wild Side. And, you know, Michael obviously was this iconic figure. You you saw the shoes, the commercials, and obviously what he did on the court. But I always found Dennis to be just infinitely more fascinating. Like here was this dude that I just felt like had so much to say and felt like he was just stuck in this bubble on the basketball court. And as we'll find out in this episode, he felt the same way because he needed to jet to Las Vegas. Uh, but reading Bad As I Want to Be, Walk on the Wild Side, like, Honestly, as a 12-year-old, I was like, man, this guy wants to be like cryogenically frozen uh, when he's dead. And I was like, wow, this these are just like great ideas that he's posing right now that really changed the course of my life, at least for a few few days. So do you want to be cryogenically frozen? <laughs> uh, yeah, let me think about it. Not if Elon Musk is involved. We can get back so, to that. We can get back to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll get back to you. So we get a glimpse of Rodman during the 97-98 season. And where we left off in the last episode was Scotty is injured. He's made a trade request. And early in the season, it, the Bulls are struggling. And Jordan needs Rodman to be his number two. And there's this scene that's described where I think Rodman gets kicked out of the game. He wasn't really good. And Rodman goes to Michael's locker room to just ask for a cigar. And that was his way of saying my bad. And they were saying that from then on, Dennis just locked in. First of all, it's been well reported that Michael and Dennis really just didn't have an off-the-court relationship. Like, this definitely wasn't a Michael, Ahmad, Rashad situation. What did you ever make of the Michael-Dennis partnership? I mean, it was definitely a partnership out of necessity. You know, like, my favorite part about that, though, was, you know, Rodman saying that, like, I went to his room knowing I fucked up and I wasn't going to say sorry, but, you know, just by going there. And the fact that Jordan knew exactly what he was doing, because Jordan repeats it basically and is like, yeah, he never said he was sorry, but I knew he never came to my room. So this is why he did it. 
you know, that just shows like kind of how in tune those guys were with each other as far as like, not, you don't have to say things like, you know, why these things are happening. And, uh, you know, the other thing that struck me in the early portion of that was talk about them struggling. They were still over 500, but they lost their seventh game in their 15th game. And they pointed out the season before they lost their seventh game in the 56th game. Like it's absurd how good the regular season bulls were in prior seasons and how with Pippen out, they were literally average. Yeah. And, and Phil makes a good point saying that Dennis was what held the team together while Scotty was out, which is pretty ironic when you look at Dennis Rodman as a stabilizing force on a team. And we get our flashback scenes this week. Dennis talking about growing up, getting kicked out of the house, having lived on the street for two years and eventually picking up basketball and joining Southeastern Oklahoma State University. So you got the Dennis Rodman college footage that you were hoping for. I did. And we and we got to see him actually hit jump shots. It was just like, wow, wait a minute. Dennis is actually a complete basketball player. And it was just something he sort of let atrophy with Detroit. And he brings that up that, you know, he realized when he was in Detroit that he needed to rebound and play defense. And that was going to be his role. I think my favorite thing about that Detroit era reminiscence was Isaiah saying when he first came to Detroit, he was a beautiful, innocent person. And I was like, well, okay, that didn't really last. Yeah, that was just a brief period of time. I think my favorite thing in that flashback, as Dennis joins the NBA, he talked about how early in his career, you know, being coached by Chuck Daly and playing with guys like Isaiah, he decided that he was just going to perfect playing defense and rebounding. And I feel like we should appreciate how much Dennis put into his craft when it came to rebounding. He talked about having friends come over to the gym at three in the morning and asking them to shoot from different angles so that he could react to the different trajectory of the balls. And he would be studying the tendencies of shooters. And he was talking about how he knew that if Michael shot from this spot, if Magic shot from this spot, that he knew where he was going to be. I mean, there's nothing more iconic than watching Dennis rebound in terms of he would just tip the ball to himself like seven or eight times where other guys would just give up. That was my favorite part of the Robin flashback this week. No, that was really good. That was really good. And uh, Dennis always had that sort of signature rebounding move where his legs would kick up really high or one leg would kick up really high. And it's like, first of all, damn, like how flexible are you? And secondly, like that always reminded me of like, there's a famous old shot of Oscar Robertson like that with his legs spread apart like almost in a full split, but like five feet off the ground or Bill Russell, you know, it was like all the classic super athletic rebounding types. And Rodman was just a throwback to that right down to like the sort of short shorts compared to what Jordan or Pippen would wear. I also love the quote from uh, Brendan Malone when he was instructing Dennis in practice and Chuck Daly sort of wanders over to him and is like, don't tell Dennis what to do. And about how you don't put a saddle on a Mustang. And it's like, all right, cool. Like he can just do whatever he wants. And I also want to say I loved and I think for for people who didn't get to watch basketball in the 80s and into the early 90s, the highlight reel of the bad boy Pistons being the bad boy Pistons was amazing, including the one part where Bill Lambeer just straight up punches Brad Darty in the face. They did a lot of stuff back then that would have earned you multiple game suspensions that barely registered. You know, it's like a common foul or just like things you can get away with. So I love those little highlight reel clips 
as uh, sort of windows into what things were really like. Yeah, and we'll dive into the Michael versus Bad Boy Pistons on this episode. It, it's funny you brought up that point. I was watching that and I was wondering, why didn't the NBA step in? Yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't know. And I think, you know, you would think after the Kermit Washington, you know, Rudy Tomjanovich punch that almost killed him, that you would have really come down hard on fighting. And damn, I actually read the book on that, but I don't recall, like, maybe they did come down hard on it for a little while and it sort of crept back in. Certainly by the late 80s, Detroit was just laying people out. I think if I remember correctly, there was a Pat Riley quote, I think it was attributed to him back in the Knicks days, where it's basically like, just foul on every play because the refs aren't going to call all of them. So, you know, you just get away with what you could get away with. And, and I think, I guess we'll get to that. I guess that's a little later, but when they like laid out what the Jordan rules really were, it's like, man, like you guys are not messing around. Yeah. So the Rodman story goes from Detroit and they briefly touch on the February 1993 incident where he had his legally registered rifle in his truck outside the arena. And, you know, Obviously, it was going to be uh, a suicide attempt. And Rodman says that, you know, luckily he fell asleep and the cops came and got him. And this kind of and there's a whole 30 for 30 on the Bad Boy Pistons and Dennis Rodman, which, you know, for an, anyone listening, if you want the full story on that era, that's a great 30 for 30 to check out. So Rodman gets traded to San Antonio. Wait, and, wait, 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 wait. Yeah, We're getting yeah, a little yeah. ahead of ourselves. Yep. Because there, we had an interlude in there about the Doug Collins era and about Jerry Krause. Yes. Firing Stan Albeck and hiring Doug Collins and this this sort of wonderful look back at this psychotic young coach who would come out of games <laughs> to the point where even the players are like, dude, you're soaking wet, you know, and sort of being this like almost partner with Jordan where it's like Doug Collins was the number one overall pick. He was only 35, 36 years old when the Bulls hired him. He was almost beyond a player's coach to the point where he was a player coach even though he wasn't active. Yeah, I love I love when Michael was like, I really like Doug, and he calls him Dougie, I think. He's like, I really like Doug because he was just as competitive as me. And I was like, bullshit. You liked him because he just put the ball in your hands and let you play and, and take every shot that you wanted. Right, and, and, and Jordan, you know, gift-wrapping him that first win at the Garden by going out and dropping 50 and coming over to Doug Collins, who, according to him, was like a literal soaking wet mess at that point in the fourth quarter and Jordan being like, we're not going to let you lose. I think my favorite part of that was Doug running down Jordan's accomplishments when he was coach and including the slam dunk contest. Right. He was like MVP, all-star game MVP, defensive player of the year. Anyone the slam dunk, dunk contest. contest. And it's like, mm, I don't think you had too much to do with that. But, you know, same thing. At that point, during that, we get that amazing Jordan highlight package set to Prince where it's just like, Again, anyone who grew up on the second three-peat Jordan, like you're watching a completely different player. Like he was so quick and so fast, you know, it's like, and those are different things. Like quick in the sense that, you know, he strips Tom Chambers twice on the perimeter on the same play before he gets the steal and fast in that he like drives the length of the floor and outraces the Detroit defense while dribbling to dunk on the other end. Like, I mean absurd athleticism my favorite thing from those old 80 scenes is just how trash the nba locker rooms were i mean we've both covered nba games we know how the modern day 
arenas look like and probably the best example was when mark cuban came in as the owner of the mavs and he did this like state-of-the-art locker room for the home team and even the visitors locker rooms are not bad i mean i'm looking at those locker room scenes and we saw some of that in the first two episodes too when the bulls were playing like exhibition games in paris and things like that i had better locker rooms when i was playing on my high school team is all i'm saying oh yeah yeah, yeah. madison square garden like when i first started covering mixed games the visitors locker room was awful i mean there were no lockers you call it a locker room. It's a dressing room. Like there's hooks on the wall. And it's like, you see these guys hanging their increasingly expensive clothing on these metal hooks. And it's just like, this is not the business. Like you guys are making far too much money to be treated this way. And then I think even before we get back to the Rodman story, we get to the Bulls versus the Cavaliers. I'm glad they gave the Cavs credit for being that other team who could have competed with Detroit. I mean, they were good. You're talking Mark Price, Ron Harper, Brad Darty, Hot Rod Williams, Craig Elo for, you know, being remembered as the the goat to the goat basically in that game was a a really good player. Yeah, so you're talking about the 1989 NBA playoffs when the Cavs and Bulls played in the first round. And the way they set it up is that because they played in the same division at the time, they played six times during the regular season. And the Cavs went 6 and 0 against yeah. the Bulls. And the series is tied 2-2. It was a best of five. Game five is in Cleveland. And one of my favorite things was Sam Smith, the longtime Bulls reporter and writer of Jordan Rules, remembers that there was three beat writers on the Bulls at the time. <laughs> and they picked, they each picked the Cavs. One of them picked the Cavs in a sweep in three. One picked the Cavs in four. Sam picked the Cavs in five. And Michael, of course, remembers all of this. And right before game five, he sees them as he's walking on the court. And he's like, we took care of you. We took care of you. And then he points at Sam and says, well, I'm going to take care of you today, too. Basically insinuating he's going to take care of all of their predictions. That is my uh, sociopathic Michael Jordan moment of the week. And then, and then the game like is to the wire. You know, you get... And it's funny how slow the clock is, especially when you're watching the clock run without tenths like it did back then. And it's like Jordan hits a jumper with six seconds to go. The Cavs run such a great out-of-bounds play where Elo inbounds the ball, goes back door, gets the ball back, hits a layup while getting knocked down. But they only ran three seconds off the clock. And, you know, as people were finding out during that era, like three seconds was far too much time to leave a Jordan team. My favorite moment of probably the episode where both Jordan and Ron Harper, who was Craig Elo's teammate at the time, are just so utterly disdainful of the idea that Craig Elo should be guarding Michael Jordan in this moment. That's all I'm saying, man. So Ron Harper makes his first appearance and Lenny Wilkins, the coach, basically says during the timeout that he's going to put Elo on MJ. And MJ says... Listen, man, that was just a bad call because because Harp was giving me a hard time. And and Ron Harper just says, yeah, okay, whatever. Fuck this bullshit. <laughs> That's, yeah. it was his and, and it's like, Wilkins. you know, I, I feel like in a sense, like, of course, Jordan's going to say that about Harp because they ended up teammates and they won three titles together and whatever else. But just Harper's reaction to it is incredible. You know, much as much as I do think Elo, unfortunately, has an entire pretty good career overshadowed by one moment. At the same time, Harp, who later became a defensive mainstay for the Bulls' second 3P team and the Lakers' first 3P team, maybe Harp should have been on Jordan that play. Listen, man, don't question Lenny Wilkins. The, you know what, though? Uh, winning his coach in NBA history. Also, also didn't matter. I think Jordan was going to score over Harper. Jordan was going to score over Darty. Jordan was going to score over the National Guard at that point. That, that game was a wrap. 
No, I, I completely agree with you. And this sets up in the Eastern Conference Finals, really the beginning of the MJ Bad Boy Pistons rivalry. And I like the way that Dennis described what the Bad Boy Pistons were basically saying, we're like a hockey team. Everyone just wants to see us fight. And it was that, right? Like if Michael was playing this particular brand of basketball that was really appealing to the mainstream, the Pistons were the guys, like Isaiah Thomas said, that were there to crash the party. Magic and Bird had owned the 80s, and now the Pistons were coming, even though everybody assumed that Michael Jordan was the next one to take the mantle. And this is where the birth of the Jordan rules began. And Brendan Malone, the assistant coach of the Pistons, is uh, generally credited with coming up with these rules. And he, and like you said earlier, he lays them out, right? On the wings, we push him to the elbow, not let Michael drive baseline. When he's up top, we push him to his left. When he's got the ball in the low post, we'll trap him at the top. Actually, John Sally then summarizes it even better for, <laughs> in layman's terms, he says, basically, are you willing to be injured for a basket? Which I think right. really is the Jordan rules. And Dennis Rodman came right out and said, we tried to physically hurt Michael. And it's like, it's crazy that you could have all that and then, you know, from there, you have not only Rodman become a key teammate, Sally eventually joined the Bulls for one title, I believe it was just one. Chuck Daly coaches Jordan and at the dream, you know, in the dream team, like there was certainly no love lost. You know, you could see the disdain in Jordan's face when he asked him about like whether they really hated each other. And he's like, yeah, we still hate each other. Like the hate still carries over. You know, they did literally everything they could to try and stop him and you know it worked for a while but it kind of led to their demise at the same time i did love even though they ended up losing the series they win game one and you have doug collins in the presser afterwards when jordan you know saved them with a shot and someone from the media asks him like what the plan was and he's like get the ball to jordan and tell everybody else to get the fuck out of the way which is candor you don't see every day in a post-conference finals press conference yeah it's candor that you don't see today I, I love the pressers because even to go back to episode one remember we talked about the bulls just won their fifth championship and michael's just being asked about the whole bulls team rebuilding it was definitely a different era so the pistons win the championship that season they beat the bulls what's crazy is too I, I don't want, i don't want to interrupt but yeah. You know, they, they talk about a little later on about Detroit. I mean, Chicago having been the only team to have beaten Detroit in that postseason. Like they swept every series. Mm -hmm. They swept the Lakers in the finals mm -hmm. and the Bulls took them six games. So you can almost argue like had the Bulls managed to beat the Pistons that year, they might have won their championship then. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And it's funny looking at the Jordan rules. I'm wondering what you think about what impact that had on the modern day era. And I'm talking like when I'm watching that and, and obviously we know that Michael yeah. ends up overcoming the Pistons, which we'll talk about in the next episode, but I'm looking at thinking about a guy like Vince Carter. Like remember when Vince Carter first came to the league and he was drawing comparisons to Michael and eventually developed this reputation because he was injured and people were calling him soft. I, I felt like because of the Jordan rules and because of the way Michael overcame it, Every other star that came after that was kind of put to that level of can you overcome the physical level of play from opposing teams? I think there was some of that, but I also think because of the Pistons and because of the Knicks and the Heat and like all that stuff, I think the the mid-90s definitely just, you know, killed physical basketball to a degree because like 
how many times can you watch an 85, 82, you know, playoff game? You know, I don't think Vince was even getting hit as hard. You know, you look at like, had there not been rules changes and had the, you know, the, the way of the bad boy Pistons and of the, you know, of the Riley Knicks continued, does Allen Iverson even have a career? You know, like if, if the bad boy Pistons were still a thing when Iverson started, he would have gotten laid out so hard. I don't know if his career lasts like three years, but yeah, you know, Vince, I mean, that's what we, we could have a whole separate discussion about Vince's career and how like it suffered just by him being compared to Jordan when I don't even know if that was a fair comparison to begin with. Yeah, no, that's uh, we'll, we'll do a 10 part podcast on that, Russ. Don't worry. Oh, <laughs> and before, you know, before we leave the, the Pistons and get back to the Dennis Rodman journey to get him to the Bulls. One thing I liked in the Pistons footage, they're celebrating winning the title with champagne and the trophy and everything else. And you see James Worthy come in from the side of the screen to reach in and congratulate them. Like Worthy came from the locker room into the Pistons locker room during their championship celebration to say congratulations, which could be a bit of foreshadowing. Yeah, keep in mind. I wonder what you're referring to, Russ. Mm. So we will pick up on Rodman's story. So he leaves Detroit and gets traded to San Antonio. And for his one season there, that's really where we see the Dennis Rodman that we know. He is dating Madonna at the time. And one really of most- disappointed we don't get Madonna in this. Yes. Like, we're still, Justin Timberlake apparently is still going to appear in this. And we couldn't get Madonna <laughs> to give us like, 10 seconds about Dennis Rodman. We had to have John Sally tell us what Madonna told Dennis. Not, not cool. ESPN. And one of the most cringy moments is this old video clip of Barbara Walters interviewing Dennis Rodman and Rodman's wearing one of his eccentric outfits. And at one point, Barbara Walters is just like, why are you like this? Basically, which I'm trying to like think about this in modern day times. I mean, to be honest, I know I'm not denying that Dennis wasn't eccentric and that he really put himself out there. But you think about the fits that guys are wearing today. I mean, Dennis is just like a Kelly Oubre today. I mean, Dennis, Dennis was basically if Parliament and Pearl Jam formed a supergroup as one person. I mean, he was wearing that floppy hat and the 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 leopard print fur or whatever. Um you know, I, I had kind of forgotten that he did the demolition man hair literally when he first got to San Antonio. Like, I, I, I don't know. I, I would, <laughs> that's another person I would love to hear interviewed. And yeah, we need like a 10 parter on Dennis Rodman because like, I would love to hear David Robinson's story about the first time they interacted as teammates, because I can't imagine two guys more opposite, you know, Dennis Rodman basically has advanced degrees in profanity and David Robinson goes to church a lot. I'm I'm not sure. Dennis's fit actually I thought with Barbara was better than coach Ron Rothstein's fit when they were asking about Dennis and he was wearing the Reebok pump hat with the flat brim. Like dog, I understand wearing the free stuff you get, but at least like don't just take it directly out of the box and put it on your head. Reebok, send me a package, man. I got you. So oh, and but I also <laughs> did love the Bulls reaction to Rodman because you had Phil on the one hand being like, our first meeting was the worst thing ever. He wouldn't stand up. I had to convince him to get up and take his sunglasses off. And you have Scottie Pippen, who was probably, who probably suffered the most at Rodman's hands, like in the actual physical shove you sense, just smiling at it and saying it was like a hand in a glove. 
Like that to me said nothing more, you know, said the most about how Jordan and Pippen approach the game. And it's like, when we play against you, we hate you. But if you come here and you can help us, everything else is out the window. Yeah. And Jordan says that Dennis was one of the smartest guys that he's ever played with. At one point too, David Aldridge, a longtime NBA reporter, called Dennis the best on-ball defender that he's ever seen in 30 years of covering the NBA. I'm wondering what you think about that. I mean, that is super high praise. And I mean, look, I'm going to certainly defer to David when, you know, it comes to things like that. I don't know. Like, again, I'm I'm not going to disagree, although I do feel like Dennis's, a lot of his best work was probably off the ball. And it might like, that might make me think like, oh, well, maybe what about Gary Payton or what about Scotty, obviously, and and Mike to a degree. But, you know, I'm, again, I'm willing to refer to David, I mean, defer to David. And, you know, Rodman obviously was an amazing talent just on that side of the ball. Yeah, so Rodman joins the Bulls and we flash forward. I want to touch on a few more scenes before we wrap up. We flash to the 97-98 season again. And we are now in January, and after missing the first 35 games of the season, Scottie Pippen has now changed his mind on his trade request. He comes back and plays 31 minutes against the Warriors, and they win. Actually, even before that. So there's this short clip of just a montage of Michael being asked whether he's retiring or not, basically after every single game, especially when he's on the road. And I remember this. I remember at the time how it was just such a strange thing because Jerry Krause would just say over and over again that Phil Jackson was not coming back as head coach. And Michael would say over and over again that he would not play for any other coach but Michael. So all you had to do was connect the dots. What do you remember about that lingering drama of whether that that was Michael's last season? I mean, I definitely remember it being a thing. At the same time, you know, when, and again, when you have a team that's won two titles and is working on a third, like you really want to try and just focus on what's happening on the floor. Um, I think it was interesting in the sense that it that gave a really good insight to fans of like what these guys deal with. And the fact that, you know, you go into every city to play and you have to take the same questions from people. You know, and if you're not, if you don't provide an answer, you're looked at as being somehow difficult or something when it's like, yo, this is like the 30th time this guy's been asked this same question in the 30th different city, you know, in the past two months. Like, I I don't know what people could possibly want, you know, like it's just, it's just tough. But I also want to give a shout out to the Sniff Brothers. That was probably (laughs) my favorite freaking scene. With the Bulls equipment manager, uh, John Lignomowski, like coming in and introducing us all to like basically Jordan's posse. And, you know, it's funny in a, in a league that later had, you know, guys with their own little entourages and Jordan's is this bunch of like middle-aged dudes who are his security guards and George, his driver, who picked him up from the airport when he first came to Chicago in 84 and then like basically never left his side. And it's one of those scenes that's just like, I don't know. I mean, it's cool because it's inner sanctum stuff. And it's also really sad because it's like, man, like here's the best basketball player in the world with his cup of coffee. And he's surrounded by like the people he needs to be able to just go out in public. And those are the people who are really his friends. 
I hope they do dive more into this, and I trust that they will, about just how difficult it was for Michael in the 90s to deal with the fame and not be able to live a regular life. And we had text about this. Russ, you had mentioned last week that you were hoping for at least one American president to appear on each episode. So and you're shaking your head right now, but hey, we kind of got a Bill Clinton cameo because in that scene with the Sniff Brothers, they are obviously watching Bill Clinton's impeachment trial or news of it. And I believe, as you brought up to me, Dennis Rodman might eventually become president of North Korea. So I think that is a technicality, but not bad. I also want to address the uh, the time traveler we get in this episode. Dennis Rodman's like walking down the hallway wearing this hat that says bong on it, which is amazing in its own right. Gets slipped a $20 bill by Craig Sager for reasons unknown. He says to pay a fine, but last I checked, I don't know what the fine would be that would only be $20 unless he was like late to the locker room. But he stops to sign and say hello to a bunch of fans. And I did notice he turned his hat backwards. I don't know if that was to like protect the kids or what. But there's this little kid with a bowl cut who gets an autograph. And I swear to God, it's one of the kids from Stranger Things. Just like... 30 years earlier. It's super weird. And Dennis hooks the kid up with his shoes, which is also incredible. And I hope that kid still has them. But uh, yeah, I didn't want to let that pass. And I looked at that. I'm like, wait a minute. Isn't that, uh, who is it? Will? The kid who had the, you know, uh, crazy. Listen, the directors are doing a great job. So I don't want to give them a hard time, but I think it'd be super cool if they actually went through the effort of tracking some of those people down. I agree. I agree. I agree. But, and, uh, and it... <laughs> you know, to, to close this episode out, we go back to Dennis again in the in the modern time. And uh, he had said in the beginning of the in the beginning of this episode about how he was just bored, you know, which is incredible to me. Like you're playing for the Bulls, you're playing aside Michael Jordan and like you need to find ways to stay motivated. I mean, honestly, that sounds like something Jordan would say almost, but he just never seemed to have that problem. And uh you know, Scotty comes back and you have Batman and Robin together again. And Dennis feels a little left out. And, uh, you know, from everything we've seen of Dennis Robin's career up to that point, Dennis feeling left out is bad. Bad for Dennis, bad for whatever team he plays for. And uh, it leads to this really funny moment that gets rehashed by all of them and this I do like the producers doing when they take something someone said and hand the phone to each of the main guys so they can hear it directly. And it leads to this moment about Dennis going to talk to Phil and they call Michael in. And like, yeah, it's so amazing. So Dennis basically wants to take some time off in the middle of a championship season. And Michael's reaction is hilarious too. He basically says, if anybody needs a vacation, it's me. <laughs> but <laughs> which, which you edited that for uh, <laughs> parental advisory, but um, but Phil, you know, Phil is always the understanding dude. You know, when Pippin had his surgery late, Phil was like, that's where what Scotty needed to do to feel like he was in a good mental space because he was angry with the team. And here he was like, listen, man, if Dennis wants to go to Vegas, let him go to Vegas. So they agree that Dennis is going to go for 48 hours. And we cut to Dennis drinking a beer, hopping on a motorcycle. And that is literally the last scene. And, and also Jordan, you know, again, prescient 
Michael Jordan is like, we ain't seeing him in 48 hours. Those guys just had, they all had their finger on the pulse of the team, whether it was Jordan or Pippen or Jackson. They just like, they just read that pulse in different ways. You know, Jackson realizes Dennis needs to get out for a minute. Dennis realizes he needs to get out for a minute or God knows what's going to happen. Jordan is like, fuck. The MVP of episode three to me was the profanity. The profanity mm-hmm. was next level in this episode. Shout out to Gary Payton, certainly. But, you know, obviously Dennis and Michael, when the when the level of the expensive tequila drops, you know, Mike, Mike has a tendency to get on one. And it's funny, as we watch this, I keep thinking to that comment he had made before the series started airing about how Jordan was worried, you know, about how this would make him appear. And so far, literally the only thing I can come up with is, man, this dude curses a lot. That's about it. Yeah, I was thinking about that too, about Michael saying that people are going to think he's a villain. I wonder if it's just because of all the Jerry Krause stuff, especially now that Jerry Krause has passed away. I think that's some of it. Um, you know, I think also we're only three episodes into a 10-parter, so we got to see what's coming. Yeah, so my favorite moment of the week you know, Rodman had a quote in 98 while he was in the training room talking about just how frustrating it was to deal with the circus. And he says, quote, it's not just basketball. It's the pressure of the bullshit. You get paid for the bullshit off the court, which I thought was really poignant, not just for him, but for Michael and this entire Bulls team. So we leave off this episode with Dennis off to Vegas for 48 hours or that's what the team believes. And that's where we'll pick up on the next episode. That does it for us on this episode. Thank you again, everyone, to listening. Once again, you can find After the Last Dance on iTunes, Spotify, and any other platforms you use to listen to podcasts. I want to give a shout out again to Soul Savvy, and we will catch you on the next episode. The sneaker game is tough if you're in it alone. Getting the latest pair of hype sneakers It's becoming increasingly difficult these days. As soon as you try to purchase, the shoe is out of stock. If you want to improve your skills, you need to learn the tricks of the trade. Be smart and get equipped with the right tools and information you need to help you cop the sneakers you want. Soul Savvy, the exclusive sneaker community.